I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a conversation featuring fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, business, and more. My guests today are photographers, videographers, and business owners, Mike and Patty Malone. A conversation is being recorded today by Zoom. Patty and Mike Malone are business partners, operating Malone & Co. for 24 years. They started as a photography company shooting film and held on for the ride through the birth of digital photography and then digital motion. They now consider executing both well as a craft in itself. Grateful to do what they love and to experience life together in their professional and personal lives, they have led their small production crew to document extraordinary subjects. These include places like Canada's Hudson Bay, where polar bears represent the symbol for climate change, and Mexico's Banco Chinchorro Biosphere Reserve, home to the largest and purest population of American crocodiles. And they include stories such as those movingly shared by Special Olympics athletes and children's hospital heroes that have inspired Paddy and Mike and ultimately changed how they look at life. Paddy, Mike, welcome to the show. Nice to be here, Stuart. Yes, thank you for having us. So when did you first become aware of photography? When, when and how did you first encounter photography? Well, when I was growing up, there were always magazines around. My parents um, didn't read a lot of books, but we had magazines everywhere. So in a way, that was unique compared to today because it was sort of a golden age of photography, at least maybe the end of the golden age of photography and magazines, um, because it was, you know, it was pretty prolific. And so that, I think that's what introduced me. And then when I was hmm, maybe in fourth grade or fifth grade, my dad was a, a car salesman and he sold cars for then what was called Datsun is now Nissan. And so they had competitions and you would get points and the points you could get prizes. One of the prizes that my dad ordered for me was a Canon AE-1. Now, the crazy thing about these prizes that my dad got, I mean, he was so prolific of a car salesman that the, the uh, truck would show up with all these things in there. They could be tents, they could be grills, and it just so happened one of the things that he got for me was a Canon AE-1 film camera, and that's, that's, how, it, that's how it started, I think. I just had your typical took family photos as a kid, but I think when I met Mike and saw him doing it as uh, to be educated and start doing it as a profession, I realized, hey, you can make money doing this. This is actually a, a paid job in life. And then I kind of joined the, the ride. Mike, you're Canon AE1. So what is a Canon AE1 and how did it capture your passion. How did you use it? The Canon E1 was a what's called a DS, no, not a DSLR. See, I've already forgotten. It's actually just an SLR, a single lens reflex 35 millimeter camera. So it was basically um, an interchangeable, you could put different lenses on it. And it was a semi-professional tool, I, 
I think at that, I mean, I was at that point, um, I was fairly young, but I considered it to be a professional tool. And I was now stepping into this realm of having a, you know, a real camera. So my, you know, there was a bit of pressure to go out and take some more pictures than just my uh, twin brother and sister, which I would commonly do my younger brother and sister who are twins. Um, but, you know, some of the things that I remember and I still have them is, you know, I would go to a Nebraska football game and my dad would kind of, this was when it was, you know, it was popular, but it certainly wasn't as um, big as it is now. So I was able to get like down on the sidelines and just take pictures. Now the lenses weren't, I didn't have a long lens, so I couldn't get real close up. But for me, it was still just as thrilling as if I was like a world herald sports photographer, you know? And now that I look at him, I'm like, you know, there's like, you can see the entire field. But to me, when I was taking that picture, I only saw the one guy running the football. Right. So um, that's what started it. I didn't, I kind of, left it after I did it for a while because I did go on to work on the school paper and so forth, but I wasn't um, involved in photography when I was um, the editor of the paper and so forth. It came back to me later, but um, when I was actually, when I was in college, I decided to come back around to it, but that's, that definitely was the beginning. That was the spark and it, it sort of stayed with me, but I, I didn't practically think I could do much with it. You know, I just, it was fun, but I didn't see how I could use it practically, you know, not even as a career, but just as creative expression. And, and like I said, it, I think the layering of all those magazines, and all those things I looked at when I was young, ended up sort of accumulating this visual knowledge that then I used later, you know, throughout my career, or even the start of the career, I should say. I want to talk to you both about how you got into the business of photography. Um, but before I ask you that question did you find each other before you started the business or did the business come first and and then the romance the romance was a high school romance Stuart and we have been together a very long time so we were we were married and Mike had already started down the career path of a photographer I worked in the corporate world and we were married about 10 years before we started Malone and Company. So the year we started Malone and Company, we also were expecting our child. And it was, needless to say, a tough year. My parents also moved away from living locally, and so did my brother during this pregnancy and the start of our business. Always the perfect time to start a business. It was, it was fantastic. I would recommend it for anyone, <laughs> but we're still here. So joking aside, how, how, how did all this come about? Well, I like, uh, I don't know if Patty remembers it this way, but I do remember thinking mm, this, the two of us running this together may or may not work. So let's just see what happens. We, you know, let's not uh, put too many, too much pressure on ourselves about whether we're, you know, let's just give it a shot because there's, I think any, and we have a lot of friends now who, uh, they, well, they've been our friends for quite a long time, but they also uh, work together and run businesses together. And I think they all would agree that when you start out, you have no way of knowing how the interaction is going to um, play out. I mean, fortunately, in our case, I think that the working together is what fueled the success. I mean, we, we definitely... Um, we tend to fill each other's deficiencies. And 
The other big thing is we sort of intuitively know the vacuums we need to fill. I mean, rather than, you know, certainly there's some times where we question each other, but we're we, much more, we say, we realize this person is not able to do this right now. So we'll take care of that. And, and it's not literally, uh, you know, the photography itself, because that's the part that um, I do primarily, but it's, it's that in understanding of the flow of what's happening um, on a daily, weekly, you know, even yearly basis. So I think that it ended up becoming the reason that we've been able to do this for 24 years, or, or even I've been able to have a business and have Patty with me, I think I wouldn't have been as successful or even, um, well, I wouldn't have been as successful if I would have done it solo. You know, I think that's, that's been, cause I, you know, photography, when, when I started, um, cause I've been doing it for 35 years, 36 years now, I didn't know a lot of people that had done it for that long. You know, I didn't know what it would be over time, but by, um, but by having Patty involved, I think, like I said, that's, that's the basis of the success. Well, and I would add to that, that our world, a production life world is, it's a chaotic life. It's not regular. There's no, one of the hardest things when I jumped into the business, basically cold was, what do you mean that your schedule's up in the air? We need to plan this. And it's, it's just not like that. And so getting through that part of it and then getting into a rhythm, we both, because we were married and had this business together and lived this life together, we understood that, that type of life. Whereas I think it's hard sometimes when you have a spouse who doesn't have that chaotic life and they don't always, it's not easy for, to live with someone who is always up in the air. Like Mike said, the biggest thing is we ultimately, we had this goal together and we didn't always agree on how to get here, but we always agreed what the goal would be. We got time on our side. We're in a state of hope. I need you on my fire. I want you to know that every time you're away, I long for you so much I can find my way. We got everything here, at least to stay alive. I'm wondering what it is that you feel like you've, um, what you've learned about yourself and your relationship with each other because you've committed to a business that involves both of you. That's a really big question. Um, I, I sort of look back and see our life in phases. The, the phase where we were married and had separate professions. And then the phase that we started our business and had our child growing up during that period. So parents and co-parenting, co-business partners. And then once she left home and the business was a little more, I guess you could say, uh, in its stride, didn't maybe take as much attention. I think where we found a wonderful place to go is finding a hobby that we did together that 
was new to both of us. And so we were humbled by it. Scuba diving, we took up about six years ago and we had to do classwork and we had to, we were really bad at it in the beginning and, but we did it together and uh, kind of have grown into this hobby that now is part of our life in a different way, but that's our personal life. It's morphed into parts of our business life too, but it is definitely Mike and Patty's personal thing that we do together. That's the romantic part of us right there, scuba diving, Stuart. <laughs> um, what have I learned? Wow, it's so in, it's so ingrained that I I probably haven't taken the time to think about this question, but I would say that just being open as much as possible is the key. So I'm, I imagine the things that I've learned are the same you would you would learn in any relationship, but it intensifies by having to make the kind of decisions and, and things we decide to do every day. So I think an openness to the other person's opinion, and it doesn't always appear that I'm open to the opinions, but I am. Uh, that's a good one. <laughs> got a dopamine rush, got a major league crush when you're next to me. Got my heart upon my sleeve, can I hide the way I feel when you're next to me, girl? I'm wondering if you might offer some illustrations of a sort of a kind of project you might have done in the first few years of the business and then, you know, how, how you adapted the business to meet new technologies and new demands and maybe a, a, another illustration of work you're doing now that maybe reflects a 2021, a 2020s version of what this business looks like and might look like. I think to start off by saying that the, the key, um, throughout all those the phases that we'll that we'll talk about is um we and i have always had this beginner's mind and, and i know you've heard that phrase before but i think through the arc of 35 years of doing this that without that it would have been extremely difficult um and and within that is just the idea that everything is is is, is new is fresh and every time you go to work on a an assignment or a project for a client, you, you want to come at it from a fresh perspective. You don't want to try to recycle um, something you've did. And to some degree, all ideas have been done, but that doesn't mean that you can't look at all of it or part of it or small slices of it in a new way. So that's always been the, the base to grow from. So when we, um, I shot film, I spent many hours in the darkroom processing black and white for personally and for, for projects for clients. So I came from that base, but when digital first arrived to us in 98, I was on board uh, right away with it because I felt like there were possibilities creatively. And obviously there is this debate that goes back and forth about 
you know, uh, whether digital is really photography or, but these kinds of discussions have been going on, I mean, since the beginning of photography. So I sort of, I sort of dismissed them for me personally. So in 97, we bought this digital back. So it was literally something that went on the back of an existing camera we had, which was a Hasselblad uh, medium format camera, which means that the film is two and a quarter by two and a quarter inches. So it's fairly large film. Um, and it was used for most professional things that we shot. Um, we would use that primarily. We would sometimes use a 35 millimeter camera or sometimes even a four by five camera or an eight by 10 camera. But generally the two and a quarter was the format we used the most. So there was a medical imaging company um, out of California who introduced this digital back and it went on the back of the Hasselblad. So you literally just mounted it on the back instead of the film roll. Um, for reference, it was $32,000. And, and this is where, this is where having someone to uh, sound things off uh, comes in handy because uh, as photographers, we always want to have backups of everything. Everything has to have a backup. You have to have another lens. You have to have another tripod. So you're prepared in case something goes wrong. Well, I wanted to buy a second digital back as a backup. And Patty um, pretty quickly, well, she explained to me that probably wasn't a wise investment. Let's just put it that way. So, so we only bought one of those in the beginning, um, which is extraordinary expense for our, you know, our business just starting out in 97. We started to use that uh, in a practical sense. We hardly, clients would not accept it because it was, you know, the quality from scanning the uh, film was much better than this digital back. Uh, but I felt like my sense was early on, we needed to learn this. And, and, and the whole ecosystem of, of shooting digitally was going to change our business dramatically. So to give you sort of a practical example, um, from a business standpoint, when we shot film, um, we would we'd charge what the film cost, plus we would charge a markup on the film, which was very traditional. And that's a little bit of way of compensating you for the time to deal with, you know, sorting and so forth. But I realized the digital, once we started shooting digitally, we wouldn't make that extra revenue on the film. So we needed to learn the post part of it. Um, we needed to be able to, to uh, generate some kind of revenue from that work. And in order to do that, we need to be pretty good at it. Not, I mean, we need to be really good. We can't, we can't just pretend because people will know immediately. So that's why I went forward with buying the digital back. And although we didn't use it a lot, um, uh, we still learned a ton. Well, and you could only shoot products. You couldn't shoot anything with motion or anything with a pattern in it. It was so limited and you had to get really good at the post because the images weren't very good. That transition from film to digital, it was about a three to four year transition um, and so we were able to, to make that transition and we were able to then, we would produce um, print ready files for clients um, completely post ready so that they could just take it to the printer and it would be within all the standards and, and considerations that need to be done for printing, um, we would have files ready. So, so that whole process that we planned out did work well for us. Um, and we, and we had people, you know, I had the people that were with me when, when I started the business, they, they also wanted to evolve into it. So it worked as kind of a team effort to, to, to grow this part of our business and, and develop that. Um, so if, as an example, and this is how the business changed. So one year we produced, um, let's say the, the peak was 1,300 
final, what we call final files. So these are press ready files. So we would do, we did 1300 in one year. Within three years from that, people weren't, they wanted images, not in single, one single really good images. They wanted batches of images that they could use in multiple ways. So that part of that business went away over the course of another three or four years, because people, we will do a shoot. We, we call it down to the best. We then do a base color correction for everything. And we give that to our clients. So they may get, you know, say, say we do a shoot that's 30,000 images. They may get 3000 images that they can use. So we couldn't really charge for individually anymore. So that was kind of how things have evolved from the file side of um, delivering images. makes the difference between you as professionals that are going to run this as a business and the so-called democratization of content creation? I think from my perspective, people can take great photos with their iPhone. I use my iPhone on a daily basis and the TikTok videos are awesome. But I think where I see the craft, where I see Mike and, and our colleague Chris, they can do it under all circumstances and create consistently amazing images all day. And that, that body of work, that library is going to be incredible with the equipment that they have, with the gear they use and the tools that they use. It's far more vast of choices that their eye sees with this lens or whatever they choose to use to make the outcome be unique and different than what I can produce or what somebody else could produce. I think it also could come down to the question of whether it's deep versus wide. So we tend to be very deep. So if you're going to have a product launch or you want to really tell a moving story, both visually and in an edit, we create the depth for that. And that depth relates obviously to our technical ability, but also to the, to the time we invest in understanding what the needs are. Or in a lot of cases, we've been with clients so long that we, we, we think for them. I mean, I'm now with clients that I've been around longer than anyone at the company. Uh, you know, So we're deep in that sense. And, and I think that the tools that you're referring to, they're wider and they're, they're kind of one-offs generally. And, and they work great for that because the other part about this from a business standpoint is 
the amount the the insatiable need for content sort of offsets the fact that they don't need as many you know they maybe they can cover some things on their own even with you know doing short videos on their phone so our value is in the depth i think and both across across all parts of the process you mentioned in the bio two particular projects that well actually several projects that that illustrate i think what you were talking about mike which is this depth and patty what you're talking about here which is this quality the biosphere in mexico you also mentioned the polar bears in canada and i wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about those as perhaps illustrative of of the work you do so we did a we did a series for wild kingdom mutual of omaha's wild kingdom for about five years they brought it back as a web series and they did a contest to find a new host and we so the the polar bears and the american crocodiles were both a story for the wild kingdom series and we started out very different than how we ended that five-year span but what really spoke to me about producing both of those was the people behind the animals behind what was happening it wasn't just learning about hey, polar bears have this kind of fur, but it was these experts who are, are there and they're using polar bears as a symbol for climate change and watching their behavior over many decades and how the ice is changing and how that changes all the things under the ice and seeing things as a whole picture. And the crocodiles in Mexico, they're in a very remote place and they're the largest, uh, the largest congregation of American crocodiles. And they're, they're very pure because they're in a very isolated place and Mexico protects that place. They limit the fishing there. The only thing that live, the only people that are out there are a few fishing huts on stilts and uh, it, it's, it's just protected. And again, seeing it as a bigger picture to our whole planet has opened my eyes a lot about how uh, we should all look at things in our own world differently. And so with, with the Wild Kingdom, we, we were responsible for basically the entire production. So we would work with uh, Stephanie Arney, who is the host, to create the story threads, uh, the you know the scripts. They weren't actually detailed scripts, but they were kind of our guidelines. Um, and then our crew would would uh, cover it from a still video, and then as well as uh, the editing and um, the all of the social media posts. So we would manage. We were given the entire process to manage. And it was a it was a relatively small crew in a sense of if you've ever looked at the scrolling at the end of documentaries, ours was probably like one twentieth of what those crews are. But um, you know that that was our you know back to our depth and just managing every single thing of, 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 that it takes to produce um, what you see um, in that case um, as web series. I don't even know how you go about something as daunting as going to a remote place, planning for that and executing on that and then producing such fine you know, product. Yeah, I guess you just start. 
every production has completely different elements. And we had amazing um, response from entities because of the Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom legacy, letting us in and having wonderful guides or wonderful context to help line, help line things up for us on the other end, especially the experts that we had access to and the people that we got to talk to. And it was phenomenal. It was a phenomenal experience. I would say that I learned so much about not only getting our physical bodies there, but oftentimes the gear, getting the gear through customs, getting the gear accounted for and allowed on the other side and back out again. And just the the tons and tons of details about how all those things have to come together. But what I would say is um, the best part of what my job was, I had all the stress and angst before we got there, hoping that everything was going to be lined up okay so that we got to where we needed to on the right day and the right time. Once I got there, I got to enjoy it. That's when they had to really start working. <laughs> and I got to relax and just kind of make sure everything was going smoothly. Losing my mind, told them I'm fine, wish I was sober We were just 21, nothing was wrong with our future But when I'm alone, feel like a stone, nothing can hurt me I live in a dream, I want to be seen before this thing eat me Your profession is around digital motion, digital imagery. So that's what you do for work. Um, but you've blended so many things in your lives already. So do you avoid photography in your personal lives? And if you don't, if you do like taking photographs just because you want to for yourself, wh what do you tend to like shooting? What are, what are the themes that sort of capture you when you're just doing your own personal photography? Well, I personally have an underwater housing and a, and a real camera. And so that's where I, I actually am trying to learn a much more, um, perf not professional, but I'm trying to learn a higher level photography status. And I have a good teacher who also often takes my photos and makes them look amazing because of his post skills. And so I have the best setup with the teacher and the post skills. Uh, otherwise, I I take photos with my iPhone probably every day just because I want to document my life. 
I think photography is so woven into my life now that um, I, I tend to carry a camera whenever I can, or I um, certainly even use the phone. And and but I, because of where I came from, uh, when you would spend a lot of time in the darkroom, I have a joy for the post part of it as well. So uh, when we travel, I will take. Um, I'll usually carve out time or lag behind everyone while I'm taking pictures. Um, and, you know, we, we have been going to um, Hawaii for 24 years. So I tend to, you know, disappear for a while and just create, you know, some pseudo cliche images and some images I think are unique and interesting. And, and I have some kind of plan to evolve that into something at some point. It's sort of, it's sort of forming, but it's, it's not quite there yet. But I will then, you know, I'll spend, you know, weekends, maybe I'll work on an image for a couple hours and um, have some plans at some point to do something with these. So um, I certainly don't shy away from it. And I do, you know, I'll, I'll bring a motion camera sometimes and just grab motion things I think are interesting visually. So I just think it's back to that kind of, you know, that beginner's mind where we started, which is it feels fresh to me every time I bring the camera up to my eye. There's something I'm trying to figure out framing. There's like, there's always a thread, you know, it's, is it the framing I'm looking for? Is it the shape of the clouds? Is it, I'm not really a street photographer, but is it the something happening at a particular moment? So it's always there and available. And there's always this potential, which I'm searching for. Um, so that's a long answer to the question that yes, we weave photography into our everyday lives. of you is is there a particular moment in your long careers where you think oh that 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 was the moment right there i've captured something that that isn't just bigger than me it's it's something really quite noble and meaningful in some way i've really captured the essence of something really magnificent obviously the wild kingdom series is meaningful but for me, watching the Special Olympics of Nebraska and the years that we have spent filming for them and watching this inclusion movement grow, I wasn't very good at interviewing some of the athletes in the beginning because uh, approaching them differently is something that is your, your mindset about how to interview them or how to maybe film them is different. And I learned along the way and they, they taught me more than I taught, than I, you know, they got out of me, but I certainly uh, learned how to connect with them and, and have such respect for them. Uh, the Special Olympics Nebraska athletes have, have definitely affected me in a very positive way.
one of the things that was a, maybe addictive to me in photography in the beginning, because I, I'm relatively shy person, but once I have the camera with me, it's this, I can start, I, I have this barrier where I create this, I feel comfortable having this dialogue because we're working together on this thing with this tool together. And um, so many of the images that I would, that I would, that come to mind um, tend to be ones where I connected with someone um, when we were making the image. Um, there was, I was relatively young. It was right after the, um, uh, the fall of the Soviet Union and um, the United States was doing a lot of work in Poland to help them sort of, you know, modernize and kind of move from under, underneath the Soviet umbrella. So Union Pacific Railroad had sent me there. There was something called the Citizens Democracy Corps and they were, they had, Union Pacific used to have a very nice magazine. They had it for many years. And so I went there for two weeks to shoot for that magazine. There was a railroad worker. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of iconic and sort of classic what he was dressed in and his sweater was, you know, it was a turtleneck sweater and it was very dirty. And, but there was this kind of thing where he respected what I was trying to have him do, you know, slightly posing. Everything just kind of came together. And it was, of course, a lot of times we don't get, you know, an hour to do a photo. I mean, that's just not how it works. So it was maybe over a five or seven minute period, but there was this trust and respect. And I think that picture um, for me personally, although anyone looking at it wouldn't probably wouldn't have all that background for me personally, it still stands as something that is why I love uh, being involved with photography every day, because it's that, you know, that connection you can make with someone. So um, certainly I photograph all different kinds of things and shoot video of all kinds of things, but my, my real joy is when I do it with people. So we're photographing someone. So that'd probably be the, the closest thing I could, or the quickest thing I could think of in that regard. Have you found that the, um, the craft and the equipment of photographing people or capturing motion images is really just um, an enabler for you to form meaningful connection with human beings and, and to pull that out of them? Or have you found that it's gotten in the way of forming those meaningful connections? The equipment can get in the way, but it's how you approach it. Um, and that speaks to technical ability and comfort with your equipment. I mean, that that's when it would tend to get in the way. So I would say it actually, and in, in specifically in my case, it, it enables that interaction. I sometimes get lost um, when we are doing interviews and Patty is interviewing and she, she's interviewed many different people for many of our projects. I get lost in just listening to um, people's responses because a lot of people want to tell their part of, you know, their, their story or, or their interaction with something. So I, I get lost in just what's what they're talking about. Um, and so there is, I think it deepens the connection because of the, you know, just the ability to, to be with them in that environment that sort of closes off everything else. And they're just that they're in that moment. And so I, I would say it, it deepens the connection. Yeah. And it's, it's an intimate experience in a lot of ways, as you know, it's just, it's just you and them. And hopefully most people that they've got lights and can't couple cameras and different crew members. And hopefully that all fades away as we're talking and they just feel comfortable and start to relax a little and just they're genuine. That's what your goal is. But I, I tend to talk that way with a lot of people. I tend to enjoy talking with people without all the equipment too. And I'm, 
I'm a lot more, I guess, extroverted. Anyway, it's just, it's just fun because I enjoy talking to all kinds of people. But I think one thing we didn't really touch on, which is significant and unknown how it's going to evolve um, when you talk about changes um, in photography and video, there are things happening from an artificial intelligence standpoint that are having like, they're, have, they're, they're really profound effects. And I, I mean, I, I'm not anti-advancement uh, of technology in photography or specifically photography. I can't speak to other fields. I mean, there's things that are happening already. So, for instance, uh, maybe in the last year, one software entity came out with this sky replacement software. So uh, uh, it's a plug-in, basically, to Photoshop. And, and then Photoshop went and did the same thing. And as many of these things in the beginning can, can appear kind of gimmicky and they don't work very well, and I'm not sure why they release software that's that way, but over time it evolves and it gets really good. And we certainly have, Chris as Patty mentioned, our colleague and I have experimented with throwing it into, um, you know, projects where there was no way we were there, we had to shoot it and there was no sky that was very nice and, or a sky that we thought would, you know, really enhance the, the image. And it works incredibly well. I mean, you still have to understand you can't have, take a shot from the middle of the day and put in a sunset sky. I mean, that doesn't work, but if you have an understanding of how it should look, uh, direction of the light and so forth, um, you can make really amazing things. So, you know, we've incorporated that into some of what we've done, you know, and that that type of technology goes across, for instance, transcriptions used to be a nightmare. I mean, it was something people used to have to do by hand. And now, you know, between, I think, um, between, I think Google has a version and there's some versions that are geared more towards uh, uh, video production. Take it literally costs almost nothing and takes no time, something that before was arduous, but in, in leveraging transcriptions for a lot of reasons is important, right? So that's an example of artificial intelligence. Um, audio repair, we use software that does an amazing job using artificial intelligence for when there's you know high-pitched sounds during an interview. But it's even going a bit further because what's on the horizon here is this, what they call an AI photography assistant. So it would be, I I'm assuming built into the camera, but something of that nature. And it would identify the scene based on millions of scenes that are similar and put, tell you, or put all the settings into the camera. Um, so where this goes, I'm not sure, but it certainly, it lowers the, you know, kind of the bar for the more challenging technical aspects of image capture and post. I mean, it lowers that bar. I, I, I don't think it's a negative because if you leverage it, you can really use it to your advantage, but it's something to consider. It's something that, you know, as 
content creators, we have to keep an eye on what this means. Where I do think this loops back around is that the the depth that I refer to is still valuable, even with those things happening, because clients still need you to understand what they do and how they do it. Or if you're telling, if you're a storyteller, you still need to be a deep storyteller. This technology is not going to make you a better storyteller. It just makes it more efficient to do it. Maybe that goes back to this idea then that the real skill, the real quality comes from that sort of ineffable essence of human connection that you create with that special Olympics athlete or that scene that you're trying to conjure in the right way with these American crocodiles mm-hmm. or, or that worker you know, on the railway in Eastern Europe. At this point, and I'm sure we'll get there, but AI can improve the technique and the technologies, but not necessarily the ability to relate human to human. Not yet, anyway. It's an I, excellent way. I, to I, say I think it. that's a that would be the more uh, yeah succinct way of saying what I had said. I think that's a, that's exactly right. And across you know all of our existence, we hope that stays as the <laughs> primary um, uh, way of life. Certainly, so. I would, I would definitely agree. My guests today have been photographers, videographers, and business owners, Mike and Patty Malone. Mike and Patty, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, Stuart. It was so much fun to be here. It was a, it was a pleasure. Thank you. Last thing, last thing. Take like two words here and three words there and five words there and put it in together. And won't they sound fine if you do that? (laughs) (laughs) That's the end of this week's show. You can listen again to this show and others by subscribing to the podcast at livesradioshow.com and find us on social media at Lives Radio Show. The music playing you in and playing you out each week was created specially for the show by Andrew Bailey. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives Radio Show and Podcast. Join me next week for fresh voices and diverse perspectives on culture, community, and more. Thank you.